Any thoughts on Dhamma or burning or unburning questions? How do you do without becoming? Oh, how do you, uh, good question. How do you make any effort? How do you get a career? How do you... Like, what does motivation look like if you're not... Well, more of, well, I've been thinking, talking a lot about work and the Buddhist ideas around work and right livelihood, morality, and that. So right livelihood always involves precepts, five precepts. And then also certain kinds of livelihood are off limits like selling arms, dealing in animals, dealing in people, and so on and so forth. So there's that prescription of what you shouldn't do. Right? So you shouldn't kill and you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't hurt people, you shouldn't be promiscuous, promiscuous and shouldn't be into drugs, and so on and so forth. And then there's, there's considerations about relationships in work. So the relationship of the employer to the employee, just as mother to father, father to mother. I mean, husband to wife and parents to children, children to parents. There's always this mutual sense of caring. So that's part of uh, the definition of work is if you are an employee that you try to fulfill the employer's requests, but the employer also takes care of you. So that kind of defines a, a wholesome environment. And then personally, usually when we talk about work, it's about three things. One is that you can get food on the table, right? That you can make a profit, that your income is greater than your expenses, that you can have housing, that you can have medicine, you can have clothing, and maybe go to the Caribbean once a year or something. Right? But it's it's a lifestyle where you have the, the basic requisites of life um, so you survive. So that's pretty obvious. So that's one way of looking at motivation. Well, I may not want to work there, but I've got to pay the gas. So your motivation is to get the money and the resources. And then, then the second part of work is work where you can develop will to skills. So if you're a, uh, if you work in an accountant's office, you become a really good accountant. If you're a householder and you um, take care of family, you become really good at um, home economics. You know, looking at the home budget and making sure everything is done well. If you're a carpenter, you do that well. So, so the, the, a lifestyle where you, 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 you develop the dexterity and uh, intellect and all, all the skills that you need to do your job well. And then hopefully that would make it more rewarding. And then finally, the third aspect is to develop character. And character always in, in Buddhism, I would say, is, is around the, you know, the teachings around the parami, the virtuous qualities, there's kind of ten virtuous qualities we talk about, which are a foundation for enlightenment. Compassion, equanimity, patience, determination, truthfulness, and so on. So these, these develop these are the idea of character, as opposed to personality. I can be a very extroverted or introverted person, but I can be also patient. I can be an extroverted person and be patient. I can be an introverted person and be patient. So patience or compassion, we would say, are, are kind of character traits that the Buddha suggested tend towards non-ego or non-egoistic 
create a wholesome environment in your own heart and our foundation for Nibbana, for liberation. So all of those three, you can see uh, motivation uh, being developed, but not necessarily in the sense of becoming. Whereas the, the ideas of becoming is that uh, I want to get the senior position and, okay, now let's think about that. Let's say um, you're in an office with 10 people, there's going to be a promotion, you've got a chance for it, it'll mean you can use your skills more and you get more wages, you probably get burnt out, but that's another thing. And you decide, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do my best to get that position. And then you use that very intention to look at ego, to look at competition, to look at jealousy. And yet, it's like playing a game. You play the game of getting a pay raise, but then you also see, in my character, what is that doing to me? Am I really becoming a cutthroat person? Am I uh, forgetting my own values? Am I just caught up in their corporate values or whatever. And then if it is that way, and the whole system is taking you that way, then you begin to develop as that right livelihood. If you have no choice, you know, you just, you've got a big mortgage, you've got kids, and um, there's a very, a lot of unemployment, you don't have that much option, okay, then you be careful that those values don't overwhelm you. But if you're, if you're, so development of characters is the practice of Dhamma, knowing the moods of the mind, knowing your intentions, knowing the result of your intentions. So if there is any kind of gross becoming in that, I mean, let's say if I want to be um, a better joiner, or a better cabinet maker, right? Because I enjoy joinery, I enjoy wood, and, and it would be great. I could you know, make more money and you know, get the kids through school and so on. Those are all normal intentions. But in it, um, I could become obsessed with joinery. I could become uh, self-critical that my work isn't good enough, or I could just try to really do my work very, very well as an act of mindfulness. It sounds very idealistic, but if that intention is there, you have a much better chance to develop skills, but not become egotistically burdened by the skills, like I'm the best joiner in the world kind of thing. So it... Uh, you know, it, it can, yeah, Buddhism can sound terribly passive, but yeah, you have to function. I mean, building a monastery is a very ambitious and rather crazy thing to try to do with no resources. So there is an ambition in that sense, but the overall intention is for the goodness of many people. So a householder, yeah, I'm ambitious. I want to, I want to get a good job, but also want to take care of my parents, make sure that I have enough safety and health, and my partner and my kids, and you know, whatever like that. And then, and then, of course, you oftentimes those are ideals, and then you have reality. Not much work around. There's a job available, and there's some pretty creepy, creepy people there I have to work with. Then that's the place to develop character or patience or whatever. But if it's too toxic, you have to be very careful. Because that will affect you for a long, long time. And if it's immoral, then best just don't even go there. Some people then get very, um, let's say they get very idealistic about right livelihood. And then they get into like, 
Well, my company invests in armaments. I can't be with that company. And I've seen people take it so far that they can become almost paralytic. So in some way, you have to be practical, too. Otherwise, it gets so idealistic, you can't, you can't really function. What's paralytic Para- Paralyzed. You get paralyzed with doubt. We had, we had a situation in one of the monasteries early years. We had a small committee, and one of the persons was very idealistic. We had, you know, we had about two pounds in the bank. We didn't have enough money for plumbing. We didn't have hot water. It was very cold. And we got into this three-argument, three-hour discussion about ethical banking. And I just was sitting there and said, you just give me some money to do some plumbing? <laughs> so that, you know, the idealism was so passionate, but the reality of the situation was, you know, we perhaps we'd spend our time in a different way. And it was quite contentious and so on. So, so I think if you get too idealistic about some of these things, you have to live alone. You know, because the views and opinions are so strong sometimes. Not that I'm against ethical banking or things like that, but you attach them to idealism and, and thinking you can get a kind of perfect situation. So monks have right livelihood too. You know, we have, we have in the Vinaya, like monks are supposed to do um, horoscopes. Which many monks do. They're not supposed to kind of go to military shows. They're not supposed to teach people who are disrespectful. They, you know, we have a, a whole uh, set of protocols which then define right livelihood, or right living, or right resort, we would say, to right where you go. The Vinaya for lay people was very vague because lay, lay people have so many different lifestyles. So it was usually around the five precepts, mutual caring, non-harming, those kind of things. There is, is there a benefit for lay people? Again, you'd, you'd have to pick through the things to get it, but there is Sigalavada Sutta, I can get that out for you, which defines these mutual relationships and defines uh, Right friendships, use of re- uh, wealth, things like that. I'll try to get it up for you. Yeah, it's quite famous. So it's usually, it's like subtitled, uh, A Sutta on Layman's Ethics. But ours is highly evolved because we are a community. We're kind of doing the same thing. So we can't have fixed rules. And we can't say, this is on, this is not on. So in, say, the Quran, or the Talmud, is it, in Judaism? Yeah? You have much more prescriptive definition of what a layperson can or can't do. And then, in, say, in Islam, the imams will translate that. We don't have that in Buddhism. But you have sort of general principles. But then you also, you sort of have a role model of the monastic community on what the Buddha said would be the ideal renunciant life. And then you can reflect on that. So why did the Buddha praise that kind of lifestyle? And I said, oh, okay. You can see it's simplicity and so on. But a layperson can't live like this because you have to feed your family. So we are fed by the goodness of the laity. 
So to say that our lifestyle is the ultimate lifestyle would be kind of conceited, really. And not everyone is suited for monastic life. Just, just doesn't work for everyone. So the, the idea of Buddhist monasticism was kind of symbiotic with the lay, lay people, rather than aromatic, like secluded from lay people. And yet, monastic life is aloof also. So we have a certain aloofness and a certain togetherness. We have breakfast alone. <laughs> With suffering, and when, sometimes when suffering can be a lot overwhelming, and to the point where it seems consuming, and uh, maybe it's hard to be alone with those thoughts and you know well, someone who could be alone all the time and likes to be alone and when the suffering can be strong you know you seek other people and you just don't want to be alone and I'm just wondering how to deal with it in those moments or le- lessen I guess the ego that's causing the suffering well see it as a lifetime project right and, and see it that you kind of enter into areas of suffering that you can handle. And when it gets too much for you, you just naturally distract. I mean, this is just human, right? But if you have enough honesty, realize, well, I'm, I'm going to have to look at that area again and again and again and again. So like, let's say maybe uh, I have some fearful states of mind. There's some things that are just so frightening for me, I just can't go near there. But I can look at certain kind of anxieties, which aren't so extreme. So actually I'm starting to touch that mood of mind in less intense ways. And then it's maybe intense, oh, that's too much, I'm, I'm going to distract, watch TV or whatever. But at, at some point, it's not too much. Because if you think about the moods of the mind, they're actually not that many. The storylines are many, and, and the projections and narratives are myriad, right? But actually, you know, when you got fear, anger, uh, lust, some kind of self-doubt, you know, it's, it's not that many. And, and, but the, the storylines are, are infinite. So what, what you try to do is when, when you feel a kind of disease or, or, or a sense of lack or uneasiness in any area, you, you really just try to get very, very good at body awareness and get away from narrative. And that's the kind of, one of the basic skills of being able to be in touch with things deeper and deep and more profound. So you, you, you start like with meditation, you start with something quite neutral, like the breath. There's nothing threatening, there's no problem, you watch the breath. But by watching the breath, you not only have a chance to compose the mind, you also start to be much more aware of your body. Your more body awareness, like you hold your posture up, you know, you feel your hips hurting or whatever it is. And, you know, you don't just get up, you sit for the 45 minutes of the sitting. So all the time, you're, you're kind of forced to stay present to whatever the mood is. And a lot of it is, is just aware of the body. The body's dis- discomforts and, and then you m- might take an object of meditation, which is like physical. And you might not know it, but then, for the next day, you're more aware of your body. It, not, it might not be so obvious. Now, if you keep doing that, you keep doing that, and you get better and better at body awareness, 
you'll start to see the moods of the mind as bodily energies as well as narratives. So you see three things. You see the mood of the mind, which is like the mood of excitement is different than the mood of boredom. Different. You see the narrative, but also you'll start to uh, intuitively inquire into, well, what's the bodily feeling of excitement? And what's the bodily feeling of disappointment or anger or fear? Stronger ones. Just by having been aware of the breath. And that's what's always encouraged, is body awareness. And uh, as you get good at body awareness, then you have a way of processing these deeper-rooted tendencies and, and kind of afflictions, because now you know the narrative isn't actually true. It's not really that important. It's just a narrative, and I've seen that narrative in myriad ways. Uh, and you get actually interested in this mood through body energy. Body, and, and, and you kind of welcome it almost. You say, oh, this belongs, this is okay. And that's very gradual. It's not like you take on the heaviest thing right away. Yeah. It's just like, oh, this is okay. And the okayness gets bigger and bigger. And the and kind of sense of mindfulness includes everything, but it gets bigger and bigger. And, and, and then you find yourself in a situation where you're surprised by something coming up, but now you've got the equipment... Uh, the kind of inner encouragement, the confidence, many factors where you 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 can be with it better. You can be with it better. So rather than being strict, that I always have to just face up everything, just just kind of take it from the other side, take it from the side when these things don't come up. Develop body awareness when they're not there. So look at the. Like let's say I'm 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 uh, have a lot of rage or something really strong like that, and, but then I can notice non-rage. Oh, this is non-rage today, right? And I get just get aware and comfortable with non-rage. So when rage comes up, I've kind of developed a sense of centeredness. Oh, this is rage now. So you're kind of getting better and better at being present, being aware, being aware of change, until you can be aware of the more extreme things. Now, when you can be aware of the extreme things, then they start to sort of process through you, through bodily energy, and the narrative wants to come up. You don't go to thought. You get very good at just going to the body. And then the energies work through you, and their, their vitality is no longer fueled. Their energy is no longer fueled. Their um, karma is no longer fueled, because now you're seeing them objectively as bodily energies. So the word attachment in Pali Upadana, attachment means both grasping and fueling. And you can see that, can't you? Like if I'm feeling ticked off at someone, and I have that memory of what they did to me, and I grasp it, that means that idiot they did that to me. So I'm grasping that, which is always ego, and then I'm fueling it too. I'm making it stronger. Or if I try to repress it, I say, I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't be angry. I'm still fueling it because mm -hmm. I'm still enmeshed in it. I don't see it as an object. But now you suddenly, you're going to get better and better at this. You say, oh, there it is again. There's that anger. And the mind wants to blame. Or the mind wants to blame yourself. I shouldn't be that way. You say, no, 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 no. What is it like in the breath? What is it like as a body energy? Now it's surging through you as an energy. And you just have this kind of faith. And if I'm just aware of this as change, then it's gonna it's gonna cease eventually, and its tendency to come up will be less.
So we have this idea of anusaya. Anusaya is probably word for latent tendencies. Press the right button, that comes out. And then we have the idea of asava, and asava is like outflows, things that flow out of consciousness, dependent on the interactions with life. So if I ask you to give the Dharma talk tomorrow, right? <laughs> and and you know you're not gonna get fed or something like that, something ridiculous. And and right, I, I say tonight, you're gonna give the Dharma talk if you want to eat. I'm throw you out if you don't want <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> that's latent tendency, fear, um, being or anger, whatever you want, being triggered. Right? You're not equanimous. If you were, if you were like really cool, you say, "Oh, great! I'll give a talk." <laughs> or if you're really arrogant, maybe. <laughs> but as an example, so that's a latent tendency coming out, and that coming out is called asava. It flows out of you with thought. Sometimes they're called uh, what's the word for effluence, like from sewage, <laughs> coming out. Now, when you're aware of that. And you, and you don't attach to it, you're at his body energy, then the latent tendency dies out, the karma, because you're not creating any more karma. So that, and that's the same as the projections and the narratives? It's, this, it's, it's the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, all of that, all of that is the, is the attachment okay. and the fuel. Right? So the middle way between repression and indulgence is body awareness. Self-judgment doesn't work, because that's usually ego in a sense it shouldn't be this way. Self-doubt doesn't work. That's ego and sense of, I don't know what to do, this is going on, this is never going to end. Projection doesn't work, because that's indulgence in terms of believing in it as a reality, so body awareness. Or right thinking is, oh, this will change. Or what's this really feel like? Or, wow, this is really strong. Or hang in there. This, you know, this is, this is the right language, the right, right kind of language. Because you're, you're seeing it objectively rather than being the subject. That's what non-grasping is about. I see, I see the asava or the latent tendency as an object rather than me being the subject of it. And you get better and better at that. And what we would do things like just learning to, to like be in a neutral position and just listen and get a sense of awareness of change. So rather than just focusing on a meditation object all the time, you learn how to just be centered with change. So you just sit in a quiet room and say, okay, I'm just going to Notice sound, and notice the changing nature. Like I always like to play with exhibit A. It's not here anymore. It's a, oh yeah. If we look at this fan, this is my party trick. <laughs> All right. So you got okay. We got some more strong sound now. Okay. So if you just use sound consciousness and listen to sound. And listen to the changing nature of that sound. And now, now look at it. You use visual consciousness. Look at the fan. And notice it's changing. Right? Changes, sound changes. Now, what that indicates is actually stillness. Because when you're really listening to that, watching change, you're with the stillness of the mind. When you hear it, or when you see it visually, and you just hold your attention on it, you begin to see, oh, there's movement, and there's stillness, and there's the stillness of knowing. 
So you, you develop this exercise around movement, but you're no longer concerned about the object of the movement. You see that movement points back to stillness, all movement. So like if you just watch that, to watch it, you have to be very still, to watch its movement. And if you get caught up with, oh, it's broken. What's oh, too loud? Why do you turn it on anyway? You're caught up with it. That's the narrative. That's the projection. So all movement, when 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 you when you that's why we're so uh, adamant about noticing how things change, not just as a philosophical principle, but as a meditative principle. Now imagine applying that to fear. That's more difficult, right? Or, or anxiety, or, and why is it more difficult? Because it's more uncomfortable. So the more uncomfortable it is, the more difficult it is to do this pain. So in meditation, one of the things we learn to do is, we learn to do with, be with pain. Not in a way of self-mortification, but just in a way natural, you're sitting there, and anyone who's meditated, you know you gotta sit through pain. If you just fidget all the time, it's gonna be horrible. So you through learning, you think, oh, this is just discomfort. And you watch the changing nature of discomfort, and that points to stillness. So you get good at it in, in, in little ways. And it's a kind of intu- intuition that develops in, in, in the meditative life. You realize that you have this refuge of still knowing, always there. You, you don't ha- it doesn't depend on an object. See, I can, I, you can, you can, I can turn that on or off, and the stillness is there, and that's awareness. It, the, the fan can be loud or soft. Someone puts on a chainsaw next to you while you're meditating. It's more difficult because that's unpleasant. But if you're really with it, oh, it's just you're just with it. Oh, it's just unpleasant. The unpleasantness goes in neutral. You go back to stillness. So desire, desire wants the pleasant and the unpleasant. So if you feel this upwelling of some negative emotion, then not only is there the upwelling of the negative emotion, there's also the desire to get rid of it. And that's the problem. And the desire to get rid of it, because it's so uncomfortable, takes you to some compensation, distraction. And then that's the wheel of samsara, the wheel of birth and death. But at some point, you say, well, no, no, I've, I've cycled through that enough. I'm more interested in getting off the wheel, as it were. And then you start to watch the desire to get rid of the desire to become. And you see, it's not like, like with fear. The problem with fear is the fear of fear. Do I get worse or whatever? And then like you realize, oh, if I just, what's fear really feel like? I'll welcome it. Now that's counterintuitive. Because you're into it, you know, your, your habit says, get rid of it, run away, it's threatening. That's true for bears. <laughs> right? <laughs> true for ticks and so on. But there's, so much social fear that's kind of embedded in sort of ego consciousness. So you begin to welcome that which you are trying to get rid of. Not, not absolutely, right? But you kind of just play around with it. And you begin to see desire as an object, rather than being the subject of desire. And when you see, when you see desire as an object, you begin to be free of desire. It starts to... It's uncomfortable. Unfulfilled desire is very uncomfortable. And you begin to forego this is the short-term satisfaction of fulfilling a desire for the long-term liberation from desire. 
the analogy we often have is of a skin disease. You had poison ivy? Uh, yeah. It's awful. I once fell asleep in a patch of poison ivy. Bad move. So poison ivy creates blisters, right? And the blisters have an acid in it. And it itches. And if you and, and then, you know, when something itches, what do you do? Oh. That's desire. Isn't it? There's there's the itching and there's the scratching. That's the that's the following desire. And it feels good, undoubtedly. You know, oh, this is great. Of course, doing that, all of a sudden the rash is now up my whole arm. Now I've got and then I decide not to do it. And then I'm in the shower and it goes again. So I begin to realize that to give up, to, to get rid of the disease, I have to stop scratching. So I have to give up short-term desire, short-term satisfaction for long-term freedom from disease. And that's very much the Buddhist teaching is that undoubtedly, like getting away from, let's say, fear feels good, but it's not liberation. It's just compensation. Right? And you sense that. If you're in a spiritual life, you sense, no, no, you know, I'm, this is really going to make me peaceful. You know, I have to somehow understand this. So it's, um, you know, I start to scratch myself. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of conundrum, you know, where, where no, it, I mean, this it does work, yeah. But there's something more profound. And then you get desire in the right perspective. Desire is natural, there's nothing wrong with it. But it's not liberating. It's simply functional in, you know, having a bit of cheese and tea and things like that. You, you realize it's it, it's not Nibbana. But you don't get heavy on yourself. Kind of, oh, I mustn't have anything. You have a kind of sense of proportion and such like. Yeah, it's a, but you see it as a lifetime thing. Yeah. It really helps. I'll just keep chipping away at this thing. You'd be amazed. I mean, I, it, it's, I don't know, it's taken me a long time to get through things like fear. Just so many years. And, uh, but I, I said, I mean, what else is there to do? So, take opium or something? <laughs> it doesn't work. Follow up on when you were talking about like the latent tendencies, mm-hmm. and uh, are there ways of being that aren't latent tendencies? Like it, you can see it clearly when you have a reaction that's out of your control, but the in most conversation doesn't isn't it similar? Like, then what's coming out is something that's, like, embedded within you and you don't have that much control over it? Well, let's say some things are, are, you're very reactive, right? But some things you can see the reactions and not go there, right? So you, you, you can see that you're not totally a victim to all the latent tendencies. So I might be, I might be in conversation with someone and I'm getting irritated at their verbosity or something like that. No, 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 I'm just patient because I see they need to talk. And I see the impatience arise, so that's the triggering. Mm-hmm. And I, and compassion says, no, no, it's okay. They, 
just need to talk and settles down. Whereas another person might insult me and blindside me. You can't say that to me. And my latent that that irritation is like anger, and I'm just reactive. So we we have we have degrees of awareness and degrees of unawareness. And all we can do is work with the degrees of awareness and make that stronger. And then, and then the, the degrees of unawareness, what we do is take moral boundaries. That's why seal is so important. That you, you, you set up really, really, really strong moral boundaries so that when the asavas or the anusai are dangerous, there's something in you says, no way I'm going that way. No way I'm going to follow that route. So, so, so there's a kind of, from the coarseness to the refinement of the mind, you have suggestions and structures to help you practice. So if, like, let's say you're, you're at the office, and your office is the trees, but you're at an office, um, and everyone just starts to take photocopy paper. Well, you know, it's government, it doesn't matter, they have a lot. Everyone starts to take reams of photocopy paper. You're, you know, the precepts say, no. I don't care if everyone else is doing it. No, I'm not going to do that. And that protects you should eventually there's some really corrupt network starts to draw you into something more nefarious. And you just, no, I'm, I'm living real straight. So you have a protection around that. And speech, very hard. You know, like let's say you want to send a really indignant email to Joe Bloggs or whoever, right? And, uh, and you're, and you think, oh, this will really sort him out. Something is just right speech. This isn't right speech. Be careful, be careful. And you don't send the email, and you don't have all that remorse, and shalaz or later. So you have a protection with the precepts. So, so what I'm hearing is that you, you, can see, uh, you can see it when you stop it. Like, the, in terms of, like, uh, the outflows. Yeah. You can see it when you stop it, but you can't always stop it. Or to always stop it would be complete renunciation. Would be complete freedom. You'd have no more buttons. Would you still do in the world? Yeah, from compassion, from a sense of deity, from a sense of craft, right? From all the wholesome states of mind. It would be quite easy to do because it would become obvious. Ooh. Yeah, this is my response. What this person needs, and don't need to do anything. You know, no, no compulsion to do, and yet no, re- no, no reluctance to do if, if appropriate and necessary. A kind of freedom and to respond to the world from a non-planned ego kind of, you know, non, non, non fixated on anything, just able, but also able to be quiet, empty. That's what I've noticed. That really. Great teachers I've met, they, they're fine to be silent, not say anything, be quite empty. People want them to say something. They're dancing around them, just, oh, just look at them. <laughs> you know, in, in the midst of 50 people. Just <laughs> it's great to watch. And yet, the question comes up, and there's a capacity to answer it, and... You, you, you think about yourself, you, you, you'll often act from a place of spontaneous goodness. Because it's just right, isn't it? It's appropriate. So we, it's, we don't become sort of inert. We have hearts, we have emotions, we have responsibilities, and we have interests. You, know, you, do, you do things, you kind of 
interest in things, and that, that's fine. But the interest is, is um, not driven by restlessness. Like, it's not driven by need. If it's driven by need, you, you begin to see that it doesn't really calm you. It's another life work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of one one part of your life work. Yeah, yeah. But it it makes it makes everything meaningful, even the hassles, even the negative emotions. They all become meaningful because they're a way of developing character and 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 seeing how to be just to notice stillness within movement. That's an interesting contemplation. Where is this? Ajahn Chah had that phrase, still flowing water. And you sit by a flow. I don't know if that's what he meant, but that's what I get. You, you sit by a flowing, like the stream here, and, and, and you listen to the change, and you notice the change, you'll be still. Your mind will be still. Because that's the only way you can notice the change, is if your mind is still. As soon as you're thinking about the change, your mind's not still. So it's kind of still flowing water. little bit of shift in topic um, when I read stuff it says like um, I guess Venerable Chunda's preceptor is Ajahn Pasano correct him. yes Venerable Kamayur his preceptor as a lay person is, that seems very formal can you take the precepts formally as a lay person too or? oh preceptor is specifically it's called Upachaya in Pali okay. and it's specifically an ordination preceptor. But as a layperson in Theravada, you just go to the teacher and take the precepts um, anytime, all the time, many times, once, formally, in many ways to do it. But (coughs) that (coughs) formal relationship with a teacher, with a disciple, is something that monks and, and laypeople it's not formulated. You might you might find one teacher helpful and seek him out, but there wouldn't be a formal relationship because we don't live together. I can't look out for your family life and household life or your livelihood. It's up to you. Whereas with a uh, a renunciant, we live together. I can I can be his preceptor in a sense. I can train him. I can say, do this, don't do that. That's appropriate, that's not appropriate. And, and he surrenders to my guidance because he wants that training. But we're living together. And it's my responsibility to care for him. It's his responsibility to care for me for a lifetime. So it's a very, it's a very formal and um, committed kind of relationship, which would only work if you're living together. Uh, but with lay people, there's still, there's still that sense of kalyanamita, good friends. So in, in Theravada, if you feel you'd like to take the precepts, you just go to a, a monk or a nun and, and say, Bhante, uh, could I uh, take the precepts with you this afternoon? And then, you know, or you do it as a group. And that is a kind of personal determination where it helps you to be, okay, uh, it, this is serious, and it helps you in the sense of aditana, determination, to practice the precepts uh, diligently. So those formal um, ceremonies are quite good because they set up in your mind this sense of commitment. But it doesn't, doesn't have to be just a kind of one-off 
in terms of teacher or time. So most most uh, Theravada ceremonies begin with five precepts, right? In Tibetan, they have, a, a, I think, a much more formal precept relationship with the te- with a guru, with a teacher. From what I, from what little I know, and the guru then undertakes to give you much more guidance and practices and, and things like that. But in Theravada, we don't. It would be the personality of the monk teacher that would determine how much guidance he would give you. So most monks just wait until a person asks and a person describes their personality in their life and says, could you suggest a practice for me? And then the monk will say, well, why don't you try this? And then a layperson comes back two months later, these are the results. And then a kind of dialogue forms and a friendship. And then there's kind of really good interpersonal understanding. Whereas I think in Tibetan they have like much more specify, you know, do these prostrations, do these visualizations. It's much more prescribed in that way. Like a Burmese Mahasi Sayadaw retreat, if you do a 10-day retreat, you see, from what I understand, you see the teacher every day, or every other day, and he asks you specifically what you're doing in your meditation practice. And meditation practice is quite, you know, sort of walking or whatever, and he's looking exactly what's happening to you, and he's got the experience maybe to know how to guide you. Whereas our retreats tend to be suggestions, go for it, come back to me if you've got a problem. So it's much more self-motivated, I think. Going back to the interpersonal relationship you mentioned today, I think it was with the meal, about the five minutes in the mind. And it's sort of one of the things that Speaking of how much retreat came up, but I <clears throat> began to notice that the things that uh, I found irritating in other people, it became more and more clear to me that there were probably flaws within myself, if you will. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to get into flaws of self and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. found that over time that the meditation takes you there, and then how do you prevent that from becoming a naming and a, a again another yet another self narrative? Say the first part again. How, well, how do you prevent? Well, I'm just wondering. Like one of the things that I noticed was, like, if somebody was irritating me, so I'm talking about friends here, not like outsiders or something, or some stranger on the road, somebody you care about, and they would irritate you, and they would come up and you know, one of the things that seemed to happen in reflecting upon that, it would be like, um, say, a controlling person. They're controlling, and I'm looking at that and it would irritate, me, and then I'm finding that it's like, oh wait, a minute, that's actually part of me. Uh-huh. And I'm kind of curious as to whether I'm naming, giving myself more narrative and naming, trying to get rid of all those self-narratives and the labeling of myself. Am I confusing myself here by doing that, or am I sort of going on the right track? That's sort of very Western psychology kind yeah, of no. mindset. I've never, I mean, I know some monks speak of that. I've never find that, I've never had that deep intuition about that. You know, maybe I'm limited. So I've, I've just taken that my mind is now creating an ego and I have to go to no thought. So I tend to move away from too much analysis because it's still being caught up with the objects, still with the khandas, and I'm more interested in the stillness of knowing. So probably, but I've never, I mean, that's not an uncommon thing is that, you know, the pe- you're just projecting your own, 
it's not, but it's never been an insight of mine that I find uh, kind of authentic to me, to me, other, other people different. So I've just tended to not try to go too much to thought. That, that this, I mean, I haven't, but I, I, what's most profitable, say, is to, to disengage from the khandhas. And thought is still the khandhas. And, and the, the tendency to, to have a, a negative emotion and then still be mulling it over is still in the khandhas. It's still in, whereas just that knowing change and then, ah, oh, there's the stillness again, that refuge. Coming back again and again, that's, that, that's what I found most profitable. It, it always leads me to the, to the uh, again, to the question of if there is no self, which is a language thing I realize, it's sort of, if there's no self and there is no soul, then what essence or entity is then subject to birth and death and aging and rebirth, if you will? Yeah. What is it? Like, I know it's a language thing, I don't want to nitpick on the language, but what is it then that we, how do we refer to that? essence or entity within us that's... Well, Theravada Buddhism does not say there's no self. And it does not say there's no soul. It says in the khandhas, you won't find a fixed entity. Now, why is that important? Because all it's saying is if something begins and ends, it changes, then you can't really find a fixed entity in it. So the misunderstanding around Theravada Buddhism is that there's no soul and no self. So it's a kind of, it sounds very nihilistic. So the, the Kandis formulation um, carries on through cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. So what's important about that Kandis formulation is that the way the Buddha pitches his teaching, he says there is the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, the deathless, the island, Peace, Nibbana. Okay? And he says, if there wasn't that, then there would be no release, freedom, liberation from the conditioned, the formed, the birth and death. So that's his sort of, his pitch. <laughs> and that's the project, right? And, and that you have to get in head, in your head. It's, it's not about the khandas being right or wrong. Or even how the khandas get reformulated into other lifetimes. It's rather that there is something beyond this birth and death changing convention. Yeah? So he says, don't worry about self and all that. But see that as soon as you take it personally, he says that's wrong view. So the, the, the reading we had in the morning, I am this, this is mine, and so on. Or as soon as you take that... Then, then you're off, you're off the beam. But when you see it as change, then you're opening the doors to the unconditioned. And that's the real, that's the real project. It's not about figuring out the khandhas. It's realizing the unconditioned, nibbana. Now that can sound terribly in the distance and, oh, I'm just a little thing, you know, I'll never realize nibbana. And you get this kind of, false humility going on or whatever. But actually, it's a kind of contemplative exercise which should take you to non-grasping. If you really contemplate the unconditioned, then you can't grasp any condition. So any thought, 
and, and then you go through the kandas, they're all conditioned. And then you get the ideas of anicca dukkanata. If it begins, it ends, that's conditioned. And if it begins and ends, it cannot be the unconditioned, so it's dukkha. And dukkha here means it's unsatisfactory in relationship to the Buddha's realization. So you get the strange conjunction that since happiness is suffering. But it's not the suffering of unhappiness, it's the un unsatisfactoriness of it. It's not it. You still can, you know, you can still enjoy it, but if you keep looking there, you're looking in the wrong place. And then anatta, that kind of self-identity, you say, okay, find it. Find it in the khandhas. So you look for it in the khandhas and your mind just goes empty. But that doesn't mean there's nothing. There's still awareness. So you might say, well, okay, I am awareness itself. Well, that's the way Advaita speaks. But we don't, we don't put in the I am. We just, there is suchness. That kind of a thing. Um, so the question of the re-becoming of the khandhas, Buddha said, that's an unprofitable question. Right? And, and if you get that phrasing, there is the unconditioned, unoriginated, unformed, Nibbana, the island, the refuge, the harbor, peace. And then you, then you say, okay, he's pointing to a realization. He's not just saying the khandhas are a bummer. The khandhas are, are, are dukkha. Uh, or they're not self, or no self, or whatever. You, 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 what's the point of doing anything? Might as well just eat, drink, and be merry until you die. But the Buddha says there is something, you know, there, and, and there is a realization, whatever you want to call it. So stop looking in the wrong place. Stop focusing on that which is changing, but be aware of change itself, and then you go back, back to the stillness. Then the Theravada makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, you, you kind of think, well, there's only the khandhas. And, and you're always fighting with the khandhas. And the Buddha says, just don't grasp them. So, like modern culture is very much on making a perfect personality. Personality, you know, and doing, like, getting, becoming a better person, which is all very, very good. But you'll never, you'll never get it right. <laughs> right? Whereas here we're saying, that rotten person that comes up in consciousness is not me, but don't act on it. Rather become a person that never has rotten thoughts, or, which is a relief. You know, it's not a problem, just don't act on it. Don't speak on it. And then you just bear it. Oh, here's that guy again. And <laughs> so it is moving like to no thought, non-analysis. Not because you're averse to thought, because you want to see the unconditioned, and all thoughts are conditioned. Limited. I keep scratching myself. That makes sense. Intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> it's the start, isn't it? Yeah. Understanding the project. It's the deconditioning that's the hard part. Yeah, it's it's very insidious. Slow. Self, self-doubt, self-despair is really powerful. But what do we then refer to that entity as, though? We don't? The entity. That. <clears throat> the awareness itself? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not an I thing. Yeah. It's, it's a suchness thing, more. It's, we say it's sati mindfulness and clear comprehension. 
know that now is the knowing. That's the way Thai, the Thai uh, forest monks talk, Penpuru, be the knowing. So it's um, not formulated as a thing. It's more formulated as a present participle. Now is the knowing. That you can know for sure. You know, like you're sitting here and you're feeling happy or sad or whatever, and it's, it's this way now, and there's the knowing. And just to trust in that's very hard. Because it's not, it's not, like for the intellectual, what we crave as intellectuals is quite often a position, a fixed idea, a concrete uh, thing that we can hold on to, and all concrete things are ineffable. So like the knowing, just knowing how things are right now is not a position. It's not an opinion. It is as it is. So you get this very vague language, things are as they are, now is the knowing. So it's something you trust in. It does make sense. That's the only only refuge that you could possibly have, because everything else is ephemeral. And then the, the, the focus on desires, because desires always going out into the ephemeral and trying to get all the ducks in line and it never quite works. Well, it usually works awfully. <laughs> Not many people think this way, you know, many people are just gobbledygook, right? Kind of strange talk, but it does make a lot of sense. Then do you view yourself to any, or have done, like, an analytical type meditation, in which when thoughts come up, you, like, bring them up and grill them, kind of thing? Not much. I, 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 I would, I would, I would, my analysis would always be around desire and the end of desire, rather than me as a person and in my history, some things, you know, some, some things would, would surprise me. Say, oh, wow, look at that. That's because of that. You know, I'd see, I'd see those relationships, but my main intellectual questioning would be around what's the desire pattern here that creates the sense of self? What's the mood behind it that I have to be aware of and not buy into its projection? So if I'm, kind of worry about the monks or, or worried about the monastery, then I have to attend to that when I say, oh, this is, this is desire for security or this is desire not to have anxiety or whatever. And then I just go to that because that's producing the thought. So I'm more concerned about the present production of thinking rather than the historical consequences of having thought a certain way. So certainly there's a history there, right? I, I've reacted in anxious ways maybe for 50 years or 30 years or 20 years, and now that still comes up, but still I have to deal with it in the present moment. So some people do that kind of work and they find it profitable. I've never, I've never been in that kind of environment where it's been that encouraged or interested. I, I started out as a monk real young, so I never had that kind of... Certainly some of the monks that have come into our monasteries who've had that kind of psychological training, they they might talk in that way more. It's just my training more. I was just thinking, thinking back to some of the readings from Rajan Chah on that topic, but it seemed to me, and I should go back and sort of find, I guess, the, the Dhamma talks that he gave, he did seem to have, he did seem to sort of ask a lot of questions, at least in terms of when he presented what he had done in his meditation. It's like, 
and I don't have any specifics. But did you get any sense from? Yeah, but it was it wasn't it wasn't the historical analysis of where stuff. Was. It was like, what is this now? Yeah, it was always very present. Or okay, what is it? What's it feel like? All right, fear. What do you really feel like? So it's always like this uh, uh, a br- uh, a brightening of, of of attention through a question. But it's not a, an analytical, historical analysis, uh, which is more like papancha. It's like, papancha is like mental proliferation. And we're very much trained in that kind of analysis. Rather, what he's doing is, I think, like, like let's say I, if I see um, a white animal walking across, what is it? And I'm attentive. I think it's more that. That's how his questions, from what I could understand. Face it now, right? How is it? That kind of thing. Like, like a typical thing in the Thai force tradition you read about where they're, they're faced with some possible calamity from whatever. So, well, if it's my karma to go, I'll go. If not, I'm just practicing. This is very common. So that's a kind of direct attention on Rather than, I wonder what kind of karma I should be having that this tiger is now eating me. <laughs> we never hear the stories about the, the Ajans that got eaten. <laughs> sure, it didn't happen all that much. No, not anymore. It would have been 150 years ago, didn't it? I mean, not that monks got eaten, but. They were tigers. <clears throat> Forest was very frightening. It wasn't. It wasn't just ticks and mosquitoes. In fact, what in a chat they just had someone bitten by a king cobra. And it was intensive care. I don't know if he lives through it. That's bit close to home, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what in a chat is the international monastery in Thailand. There's about. 40 Westerners they practicing. And it's a very developed monastery. There's lots of people. Someone got bitten by King Cobra. <laughs> <laughs>